Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a starless interlude. There are seven episodes. This is one of them. It is a cool, crisp, foggy autumn morning in the Pacific Northwest as William Jackson McCullough and Phoenix McCullough sit in their recording studio to record a podcast about a book called The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. A small dog is yapping outside incessantly. Mercifully, because of the fog, no airplanes are circling overhead. At least, not yet. All right, listeners, as we have stated many, many times in our regular read-through of the Kingkiller Chronicle, specifically The Name of the Wind, we have decided to take a short break and allow me to catch up with editing by reading a different book. Wow, I don't know why I give myself more work, but I do. We hope you like it. Our Starless Interlude will be recorded over seven episodes and release every other week. We thought we'd take a little bit of a different path on this little interlude than our normal structured episodes. There are no punishments in these seven episodes. A, it's getting close to Christmas time, and we don't want to be mean to one another over this particular time of year. And then also, it kind of represents more work for me. So, <laughs> defeating the purpose. Now, this is the busiest time of year for me anyway, so I don't need more stress either. No cherries for you. Thankfully. The other thing that's going to be different about this series is that I have not read this book before, so what you are going to be seeing are my reactions to it as I read it. Well, Phoenix has read the whole thing before, so she's the expert, I'm the newbie. We're not really going to be going into a whole lot of stuff in the future of the book, so pretty much everything is just going to be covering the first 80-some-odd pages of the book. We're breaking it into seven roughly equal parts. This part covers the first 87 pages of the paperback U.S. edition. We will be ending with Patience and Fortitude, 1 a.m., Bring a Flower. Before we begin, we would like to say at least one of our normal disclaimers, just slightly modified for this book. We are in no way affiliated with Erin Morgenstern or her publisher, Anchor Books. And as always, please be kind to yourself, to us, and the authors responsible for the books you love. So the way that these seven episodes will work is we're going to go over the section of the book that we read, but kind of gloss over it. It's not going to be as detailed as our read-through of The Name of the Wind was, because otherwise this podcast would be hours long, and I'm not doing that. Secondly, after we go through the chapters that we have decided to read, we will be looking at a character to highlight from the text. We're not really going to go into a phronemos, because... The characters in this book are not particularly motivated by moral reasoning. Not that they're immoral or anything like that, it's just that this particular story, at least so far, has characters motivated more by solving a mystery just because they're curious, as opposed to trying to embark on some sort of improvement or anything like that. Or any moral imperative. Yeah. After our character highlight, we'll go into some of our experiences with games 
because games feature heavily, at least in the beginning of the book. And we want to nerd out. It's a good jumping off point. So after we speak about our game experiences, we'll share some of our own game recommendations and then some book recommendations as well for how to while away a good, cool winter afternoon. After that, we'll wrap things up with some of our favorite quotes from the book. And with that, I think we can dive in to the book. I don't think we're going to do this long-winded explanation for all of these episodes. But for the first one, there you go. So with all of that out of the way, let's kind of dive in. Figured we'd go section by section here. And my first impression is that all of this stuff seems like pieces of a puzzle that haven't been put together just yet. I know that they'll fit together somehow, but it's not immediately evident how. So we're just going to start talking about these pieces and the moods that they seem to evoke, because that's one of the things that really captured me about this. It's the mood that comes from places and stories. All right, so let's dive in. Our first little puzzle piece is this vignette about a pirate sitting in jail and then a woman who brings him food and eventually comfort. I know who the pirate and the girl are. I don't yet. As I say, I've only seen this one puzzle piece so far. Immediately, though, the mood that I get from this is, I kind of feel like this is the Dread Pirate Roberts from The <laughs> Princess Bride. <laughs> he just kind of has that feel to me. Can't really speak why. Maybe it's because Aaron Morgenstern shares a last name with S. Morgenstern, who is the fictional author of The Princess Bride from William Goldman. But I like to think that there's maybe some intentionality there. I think that this little vignette does a good job of setting up how the story cadence will go. Because there is a lot of, I am a clever writer, stuck into this. And it's not annoying to me at all. This book is very much, hey, look how clever I am as a writer. But in a way that is legitimate and celebratory of books, of the moods that are set, of the settings that are laid out in front of the reader. One thing that seems to jump out at me is that that ability of a book to transport you, at least for a little while, to this other world that is maybe like ours, maybe completely different, but it's a way to remove yourself at least for a little while from your day-to-day -day struggles. So next we get another seemingly unrelated puzzle piece. Again, if we use our puzzle analogy, this is just a piece that exists somewhere else on the board. Not maybe directly related to our first little pirate story, but somehow it'll connect up. We put a little bit of faith in our puzzle designer that she has figured out a way to make these fit. And anytime you start a puzzle, you take that faith that the people have put all the pieces in the box that actually fit together. And this isn't just from some other random story. And this describes sort of an occult initiation for these acolytes who take an oath of silence eventually. We don't know exactly what they're acolytes of, but their icon is a bee. Bees and keys and swords will feature heavily in this story. So why do you think the bee was chosen? I'm not going to answer questions like this. Okay, then I will conjecture. There's a reason. I've read the whole thing. <laughs> you have. 
So my thought is bees are symbols of industry. They work as a collective to create a greater end. An individual bee may be expendable, but the hive as a whole, as a collective, ends up fulfilling its own ends. Also, I suspect that because honey plays such a part in all of this, I keep getting called back to Beowulf, who is famous for being a beekeeper in addition to slaying monsters. Because honey goes into mead and, yeah, all sorts of interesting things there. I think that the symbolism is so key to this story. It's all about symbols and moods and this romanticizing of books and tea and cats and winter and coziness and libraries. It's kind of the perfect cozy blanket book, I think. You know, sometimes you have those books that are definitely cotton candy books. You have books that are inviting you deeper into the story and invite an analytical approach. But I think the best way to describe how this book makes me feel is it's the book equivalent of one of my favorite places on earth. And that is the Sylvia Beach Hotel in Newport, Oregon. It's an over 100-year-old hotel. It creaks and sways and it's on a cliff above the ocean. There's fireplaces. In the fall and early winter, you can look outside and see the storms or see the sunset. It's full of comfy couches and books and author-themed rooms. It's full of love and it's full of book lovers. And there's a cat. And there's mulled wine available in the evening if you are able to stay up until 10 o'clock. There is a book-themed restaurant in the bottom of it. Wonderful breakfasts, and if you can go to the table of contents for dinner, it is much more than a meal. It is an experience, and it is a place that encourages camaraderie and meeting new people who are also just in love with books. And that's that's why I wanted to read this. And from the second that I started the audiobook, it just, ah, especially with Zachary's story. Which brings us to our next little vignette about a fortune teller's son taking a shortcut through an alleyway on his way to school, where he finds this mural of a doorway. Again, with the author going, I'm clever, talking about how the 11-year-old is like, I know there's a word for this particular type of almost real painting on the side of a building, but I don't know what it is. And my brain was like, it's Trompe And then a couple pages later, we find out that, yes, of course, now he knows that it's a Trompe <laughs> Go ahead. It's really evocative. It feels mystical. He's almost about to try and touch it to see if he can open the door. But then he decides not to. And we're told that he could have gone in. So he's about 11. And he's in that stage where the mystical versus I want to be an adult are warring with one another. That childlike innocence is kind of fading away. And he hasn't yet hit the point where he's like, I don't care. I like what I like. Which is kind of where we landed with Pokemon. It occurred as a phenomenon initially when we were around 11 or 12. And we were too old for that. 
We were just old enough to think that we were too old for it, but not yet so old that we were able to be secure in what we liked. I remember it was always just something that my little brother liked, so, yeah. So I feel like we missed a cultural phenomenon. Neither one of us likes the video games or really has played them. I don't know that I wouldn't like it. I just haven't played it. I never played them. I mean, we didn't have a Game Boy growing up in our house, for one thing. And my brother played the card games and he played the Nintendo 64 game, but I didn't have an attachment the way he did. I had a Game Boy, but I had like three games on it and they were Mario games, Legend of Zelda, but like the first game that I got with it was terrible. <laughs> it was the original Game Boy version of Home Alone 2. Oof. And I couldn't figure out how to get up the elevator. I mean, that's like just one step removed from E.T. in terms of how bad a game adaptation can be. Yes, because there was absolutely nothing to do in that game if you were stuck in the lobby. Oops. Yeah. So I have no idea how truly bad it actually is because I never really got to play it. Let's go on. Yeah, so... Then we move forward to grown-up fortune teller's son, who is Zachary Ezra Rollins. We will always hear about him with his first name and his middle name and his last name. At least in the beginning of any chapter that he appears in. Flash forward, he is now living in New England as a college student, or a grad student rather. He is studying narrative design specifically in video game forms. And he's in this Janterm section, or J-term, which really reminds me of my college days. I went to school in Spokane, Washington, and our school had a Janterm where instead of taking a full load of classes, you'd take one three-hour block class a day. It'd be the same class for the entire month. So you'd take it either in the morning or in the evening, and the rest of your time was yours. Taking a morning Jan term class was great because you'd go to class, do your thing, and then afterwards you had the entire afternoon to do whatever you wanted, whether that was go skiing or go hang out in the library or go watch a movie or just sit down and read because you did have homework. Just that sort of feeling where it's a little bit quieter. Some students didn't come back until spring term kicked off in February or others just would go on student tours and things like that. Jan term was always kind of a fun little break from normal school life. And at Zachary's school, it's kind of similar to that. They don't have any formal classes, though. So it's all independent study and student-led symposiums and things like that. And this is where it kind of gets into my college memories. I went to school to be a game designer. Not what I'm currently doing, but I still really loved the experience. There are discussions about narrative games and narrative in books versus games and choose your own adventure and this discussion happens around games as art. And I gotta say, I find the debate over whether or not video games are art or games are art to be really stupid. I hate that just so much. It's so useless to me because I don't think that there is a Venn diagram of circles that are separated. 
that say this is art and this is not. I don't even find that the idea of a Venn diagram with overlap of there are some games that are not art, there are games that are art and games, and then there's art that is not games. I find that stupid because walking simulators, as they are derisively known, they're still games. They're still something that someone put together with a beginning, an end, and a goal. Whether that goal is to experience a narrative and only experience a narrative much in the way that Dear Esther is, you can still choose your own path and you get the narrative in different chunks and different orders and your experience will be different than someone who did it in a different order. But there are things that get lumped into that, like Journey or Flower or just this whole host of other... How did you put my favorite genre of games? Charming indie game, probably about grief or some shirt. <laughs> yes. So that's my preferred style of game. Generally speaking, I like using games as a way to kind of understand things that are going on in my head. And a lot of these charming indie games that are about grief or something do that really well for me. But I also do enjoy things that allow me to just beat the ever-loving crap out of pixels. Because sometimes you just need to let your anger out. And sometimes those games are made so well and feel so good to play, to just zone out in. And it is not a waste of time. And those games can also be art. Are movies art? I mean, they can be, certainly. Are books art? Certainly they can be. It's kind of a pointless task. Usually it involves either aggrandizing the ego of the person who is expounding on what is and isn't art and doing so by taking a intellectual dump on someone who actually put a lot of work into something. Because the fact is that even the worst book, movie, game, or painting or whatever represents hours and hours and hours of work that someone clearly had to put effort into doing. Also, a lot of learning that someone had to put effort into doing. You can't just make something without learning how to make it, even if that process of making is how you are learning. Like, I look at something like Manos, The Hands of Fate. This is an objectively terrible film. It's janky as all get out. The camera was broken, so they couldn't use a shot that was longer than 30 seconds. So there's all sorts of weird camera choices there. The actors were all amateurs. The whole thing was made on a lark because the director was just some guy who was like, well, I'm a fertilizer salesman. I bet I could make a movie. That can't be that hard, can it? It was really hard to make, turns out. <laughs> and the whole thing was a disjointed mess. The performances range anywhere from terrible to abjectly terrible, <laughs> but it was by no means easy to do that. It took a lot of money, it took a lot of time, and a lot of effort, even to get a bad thing. Point being, no matter how bad something may work, someone worked really hard on it. Probably. Now, not all of that happens in this one vignette of Zachary's story. There are little bits and pieces peppered throughout that kind of interrupt his story, but his is the main narrative. But we get introduced to our kind of MacGuffin 
item, which fittingly is a book. But it turns out that the first three chapters of this book are the first three chapters of the Starless Sea. Naturally, when Zachary reads about his 11-year-old self, he freaks out. I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if it was something that I remembered and was revisiting over my life and going, what would have happened if I had opened the door that was clearly painted on a wall? Yeah, I'd probably go, wait, I was the only one that knew about that. It was painted over when I came back. Uh -huh. It almost reminds me of that bit in The Dark Tower where the characters have to save Stephen King from a van accident so he can write The Dark Tower. <laughs> Spoilers for however old a book that is, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was both goofy and kind of cute, I gotta say. I don't think it was remotely clever, but I do think it was kind of cute. But yeah, I like the way that Zachary is described because it's almost this hyper real version of someone like me, where clearly he has anxiety issues. Clearly he would rather be an introvert and cozy and curled up with a cat rather than out at a party. He's slightly socially awkward and he reads about himself in a book and then he goes and hides in his closet. I like how vivid and how real he feels. So to tie into the details, because this book is very much all about details, behind the barcode, which mysteriously hasn't really worked at the library at the school, but when you peel off the barcode, there is a B, a key, and a sword imprinted on the cover. So one of the things also that I noticed about this section particularly in his adventures at the library, is one of the student librarians is assisting him, and she's introduced reading crime fiction, in this case Raymond Chandler. This seems to parallel the jailer in the pirate section, who is also reading crime fiction while just sitting around. So that just seemed like an interesting parallel there, and I'm wondering if that's an intentional thing that'll pay off, or if that's just a uh, casual similarity. I'd say that there are no accidents in this book, but I also think that some of the stuff that is narrative parallels might not have a payoff. We get our first little interruption into Zachary's story, and it's the dollhouse. Yeah, that kind of reminded me of, like, if you see people who get really into model trains and start building these giant miniature dioramas that have an entire town in them, Kind of has that feel to it. To me, back when I was at DigiPen, a lot of my memories come from there. So a lot of my stories. I took a class from a specific teacher where we had to do kind of a boot camp at the beginning that was all about figuring out what the boot camp was for. And it was very collaborative. There were a lot of places where people could go off and do their own thing. There were a lot of places where people could make something together. And the part of that that so very clearly resonated with me was making things together. We had the largest canvas I have ever painted on, a ton of paint. And halfway through, we went and got more paint because we ran out. There were also a lot of littler canvases that were meant for people to go off in ones or pairs or threes and work together on. But 
the big one was for everyone. You'd put something on the canvas and then someone would paint over it eventually because you just wind up with people squirting paint or putting stickers on it or putting glitter on it or doing any number of things. It was wet the whole time and you just kind of had to let it go. You had to not care about your own precious thing, but care more about pieces peeking out or things melding together. I did something and then Sarah did something and then Ruben did something and... It was beautiful and weird, and it also very much hammered home the letting go of your baby, letting go of the thing that you find precious, and finding joy in what came next. So that's how the dollhouse feels to me. It's built out of a whole bunch of people coming in, making changes, moving the dolls around, making a sea out of paper post-it notes or hanging stars from the ceiling. It's a really interesting thing. I, again, assume it's a piece from somewhere else on the board. We don't know how it's gonna fit together just yet. So then our next step is a brief foray to Kat's symposium. Kat is one of Zachary's friends at school. Probably his only real friend at school. She is able to draw him out and it's clear that he has affection for her and she has affection for him. And they have a nice little relationship that I really appreciate. She's almost Manic Pixie Dream Girl-esque personality, but she is a nerd. She wants to talk about games and books and she wants to talk about Harry Potter and she wants to knit him a scarf as a thank you gift for coming and teaching part of her class. Sometimes the best friends that we make are the ones that we make in school, especially college. I think that those friendships, like those really deep ones, can last a lifetime. And you can put it down and pick it back up and put it down and pick it back up. And you're just still the same core of that friendship. A large part of that, I think, is because the college experience is one of becoming. It is as you are figuring out what sort of person you actually are. It's where you put to test a lot of those lessons you thought you'd learned in childhood. It's where you kind of solidify your identity as an adult. Not to say that you don't continue to change and evolve, but it really helps set you on a path. And in that transitional state, that's where certain things really solidify and a lot of those core relationships emerge. I have several friends like this. We're separated by time and space, but you know, at any time we can call or text one another and next thing you know, we're reminiscing and <laughs> talking about what's going on in our lives right now. And yeah. I know at one point, one of your best friends and you wound up having a conversation about stresses around the political nature of the U.S. a couple months ago. And I'm not part of that core of that friendship because I wasn't at school with you and I didn't make that clear, solid core thing with him. But he's someone who, while we have different interests, he meshes really well with us. Well, and he and I probably wouldn't have gone out of our way to hang out together, but we just got put together because of the random lottery that is freshman roommate assignments. And that turned into this lifelong friendship that's now almost 20 years old. In a way, I can credit him with 
part of how our relationship started because you were on a trip to see him get married. Yep, that's right. I'm sure that you were sitting there at all of these events, just kind of on your phone, being somewhat social, but also antisocial. Yeah, every now and then I'd have to sneak away to chat with you. That was 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Time flies. Yeah, that friend now has three kids. Yep. And at least one dog. I think two now. <laughs> Cat's class is where we have our conversation about games as art. Again, I don't find that to be a very useful distinction. I think narrative experiences can be art no matter what the narrative experience is. So then we have our vignette about the kid who has to watch over a book. Yeah, this is where we get our next little symbol, which is the guardian. This is the second path. So there's a boy who is given the task of watching over a book in this giant library or bookstore or whatever. And this giant library is rambling and vast, which really reminds me a lot of Powell's books in Portland, Oregon, which is a giant city block filled with books and winding passageways and rooms and multiple stories that don't seem to all be on the same level or any discernible level. It's like a half level or like a full level. And some are on one side of the building and some are on the other side of the building. And it just is so easy to get lost in this place that you just don't want to leave anyway. Yeah, Powell's Books is a true experience that I think everyone should experience at least once. If you get into Portland, Oregon, make a point of going to visit. The test, of course, is whether he can stop someone from taking the book. So someone comes and he says, no, you have to put that back. I was told to watch over that. After he finally convinces the person to let him keep the book, the person who initially asked the favor of him comes and takes it back and then says, yes, you've passed the test. Does she actually say that to him? I don't think she says that yeah. to him. I think that we as an audience know that he has passed a test, but he doesn't even know he was tested. Yeah, you're right. And so then later on, this boy is brought into some more arcane tests, including trying to keep an egg from getting broken for six months. Upon completion of that trial, the egg gets crushed in his hands, which leaves this gold dust around it, around his palms. So there we have a lot more of that honey-colored, gold-colored symbolism. The bees and the keys and the swords still come back. Guardians are tattooed with a sword, about three to four inches long on their chest. And every sword is unique. All of the details here are so evocative. I don't think that we can do them justice. The enchantment, the fairy tale-esque quality that isn't saccharine, but it's more mysterious. Well, and there's an edge here. They're given this choice, whether they want to proceed with initiation or not. And if they choose not to proceed, then they are killed. So there's this sense that there's danger here. There's a little undercurrent of darkness. Again, we're not sure exactly where all this is going to come into play. So let's go on to the next venue. I will say that it's really nice the way that we are actually 
introduced to a character who we can make that connection back to one of the paths. But that hasn't happened for you yet. No. So I'm going to be on the lookout for someone with a golden palm and a sword tattoo. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> After that, we have Zachary Ezra Rollins and Kat, and then one of Kat's friends at the Laughing Griffin, which reminds me a lot of some of the college hangouts that I used to frequent. Like there's a taxonomy of college bars. So there's several types. First, there is the dive. The dive is the place that people go because it's cheap and maybe they don't really check your ID very carefully. Okay. Back in my college days, that was the Bigfoot Pub and Grill. <laughs> I'm aware of this place. I also lived in Spokane. The foot was definitely a dive. Then you have sort of your mid-range place that has maybe a fun thing to them. This would be the place that has karaoke, maybe has more food options. This would be like Fizzy Mulligans. I liked Fizzy. I remember doing karaoke there many nights. Had a good time with it. And then the third is the Classy Bar. This is the place that serves good cocktails and is a great little spot to take a special someone. This would be Catacombs. Yeah. Catacombs recently changed ownership and theming since the last time I was in the city, but when I lived in Spokane, Catacombs was in the basement of this old hotel, and it was themed like a French underground speakeasy almost. It had sort of a medieval feel to it. There were these low brick ceilings, and so you'd find these little nooks and crannies that you could sit in, in the dimness with another person. The food was really good. The drinks were fantastic. There'd be quiet music playing, and it was designed specifically for this sort of quiet conversation. That's kind of how this one feels to me. They have good drinks. They have a nook to sit in. They are being watched, but Kat assumes that it's by someone who is interested in Zachary. Like, romantically interested in Zachary. Which... So after he spends some time at the Griffin, having an interesting conversation with someone who doesn't really play games, he and Kat spend some time trying to find good introduction games. Someone who's wanting to start. Kind of a gateway into gaming. And we'll be having our own little gateway gaming discussion here in a bit. And then we get a little library mystery. I like that little library mystery. Someone from Kat's class stayed after to talk to Zachary, and it turns out that it was the girl from the campus library who said, hey, yeah, I was curious about why that particular book wouldn't ring up properly. Here's the other ones that were donated by the same people. And Zachary goes along and tries to find all of them, and he does, but then he leaves them unattended to go get a muffin. Muffins are great, but... Rookie move. That's how you lose books. And that's how he lost a book. So there's one more mystery that is being set up in the first 50 pages. So we'll keep an eye out for the last name Keating, because that's the name of the mysterious donor. J.S. Keating. Hmm. Or rather, the J.S. Keating Foundation. Just to make it a little more Secret Society-esque. <laughs> Next, we get a vignette about a girl exploring a forest 
and finding this crumbling doorway within it? I think that the doorway has fallen down. So now it's kind of a door into the earth. Everything feels overgrown. It feels a lot like the beginning of the secret garden to me where everything is overgrown and you can't see beneath all of the plants and weeds and shrubs and things. But it also has kind of this feeling about an enchanted forest or a literal portal fantasy. And there's also parts of it that make me think about the labyrinth, specifically the door knocker, having to go find the ring and put it in the lion's mouth and then knock on the door. And then the girl falls through the earth. So I was called to mind growing up, the school that I went to from sixth grade all the way through 12th was in the middle of a forest on the hills of Tiger Mountain. And my friends and I would spend our afternoons exploring this densely wooded area, going through ferns and brambles and devil's club and nettle patches. Fun fact on the nettle patches, one of said friends later went back, picked some and made us a tart out of them. Yep. And I remember we constructed elaborate mythologies about the various places. So there was the Dark Sector, which was an area supposedly haunted by a dinosaur. There were internecine squabbles with other kids. We built forts. We would explore and just go wandering. We always knew how to get back. It was never that hard. You just knew the direction. You just go back up the hill and there's the school. It was just this really fun, innocent, carefree way to spend a day. And that's really the feeling I got here as well. Back to Zachary's story. He has Googled the name of his book, Sweet Sorrows. He has looked up what the Keating Foundation is. And he has tried to look up the bee and the key and the sword and all these other things to help him figure out the mystery, the answer to why he shows up in a book. And he finds out about this charity ball, book-themed charity ball that happens in New York. And so to continue on with our romanticizing of very specific details that seem to be common amongst book lovers, he goes to New York on a train. Train travel is my favorite means of cross-country travel, I have to say. It's not the most convenient way. It is not always the most practical way, and it is certainly not the fastest way, but it is one of the most relaxing ways. If you want to just enjoy the journey, a train can't be beat. Yes, I went cross-country on a train two different trips. One I don't remember at all because I was under three years old. It was how I moved from Alabama up to the Pacific Northwest when I was three. The other time I was 12, and... I have an association with trains and books and games. And I know I've told this story before on the podcast, so I won't go into too much detail. But again, I had an original Game Boy and I took a cross-country train trip from Washington to Virginia. And I don't know if you know this, but Wisconsin and North Dakota and South Dakota are boring to look at for a 12-year-old who is stuck on a train. So the girl in the next cabin over lent me two of her games, and I fell in love with both of them. 
They were Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening and Mortal Kombat for the Game Boy. <laughs> I remember my first real train experience. I took a trip to Alaska with my aunt. We took the train from Anchorage up to Denali National Park. That was the best way to see the countryside. I remember we were in this sort of observation dome car. So you could see a complete vista of the mountains and the trees and the streams and rivers. You could see wildlife. You could see all sorts of stuff. And at one point, you know, I mean, everyone had their cameras out constantly and was just going nonstop. And my aunt's roommate, who was traveling with us, who I absolutely adore, she looks out the window as we're crossing a bridge over a river and there's some fly fishermen out. And she, at this point, just goes, look, everyone, people. And then immediately someone on the train just goes, eagles, where? And then everyone is just out randomly taking photos, figuring I'll probably get a picture of an eagle somewhere. I got to do this quick. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I mean... This is the days before digital cameras, so that meant that people had to go develop their film. They couldn't just delete it if they discovered it was nothing, you know? Oh, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> we had so much fun on that trip, and I could sit down, I could read, and I could look at the countryside, have a hot cup of tea or hot cocoa or what have you, and kind of just enjoy the trip. You got to actually experience it in a way that you don't if you're traveling by car or plane. The fact of the matter is that the people that you go on a trip with also can affect your experience of the trip. You and I have very similar ideas of the perfect vacation. Go somewhere pretty, nose in a book. Yep. <laughs> your parents do not have this same... <laughs> thought of what a vacation is they are let's go camping and then sweep the forest yeah as it appears on the front deck of a yurt let's be together and active and talking the whole time i remember facebook stalking you before we started dating creepy eh. i wanted to figure out if you were going to murder me in my sleep when i shared a room with you at pax <laughs> so and there were photos that were recent of a vacation that you took with your whole family down in Florida. And the pictures of you are generally from the back on the beach with a book in front of your face while you were relaxing and probably sunburning. I was definitely sunburning. <laughs> what I also remember is having conversations with your family and they're like, yeah, we went on a vacation with Will and he just stuck his nose in a book. And I'm like, yeah. You went on a vacation with Will. And this is not a new thing. They know this. Every vacation that we've ever been on has involved me sticking my nose in a book. Yeah. <laughs> but back to the train, we get a little bit of why you shouldn't go on a train in the snow. Because even with the best of plans and intentions, snow has a habit of impeding moving vehicles. As we continue on, we get more people that Zachary interacts with that may or may not be people that are going to be important later. But someone borrows a pen 
And in books like this, someone doesn't just borrow your pen. So there's probably something more to it. Yeah, that's a weird detail to bring in there if it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so at the end of this artificially lengthened train ride from Vermont to New York, he checks into his fancy hotel, wonders why he doesn't do this more often, and then he looks at the price of the hotel again. And that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> hotel stays, especially if they're nice ones, are expensive. Yep. But man, am I looking forward to doing another three-day weekend with you somewhere at a nice hotel or resort. Somewhere that is not our current house. <laughs> That's what I have to say. Come on, pandemic. You can let up. <laughs> Come on, vaccine. You can do it. So at this point, we get a little bit of Zachary's prep time activities, including taking a bath. And I know you, Mr. I am six foot four. You haven't taken a comfortable bath in how long? Quite some time. Most bathtubs are not really long enough for me to really properly enjoy them. Right, because your legs are too long for the front of the bathtub to the back of the bathtub. It's not a comfortable experience. I mean, I'm short, and I still don't have a comfortable experience in most bathtubs. But man, it'd be nice to get one that was. Yeah, but I like this romanticizing of clawfoot bathtubs and then realizing that the practicality of them is just non-existent and how lovely and luxurious a bath can feel when it's in a properly sized tub. And one that actually holds temperature. Yes. He gets ready for the party that he has signed up to go to. I guess if you make a donation or what have you, you can go to the party. You don't have to have a formal invitation from said party people. And it's at this place called the Algonquin Hotel. But before we get to the Algonquin, we get our first mention of the name of the book, The Starless Sea. It isn't the first mention. The first mention shows up with the Acolyte. Ah, okay. But it calls to mind the way that books transport the reader and the writer to this different world. And this sort of eternal library where visitors can lose themselves for however long. They can drop in and drop out. They can hunker down and be all cozy, or they can go and explore. I love the description of the Starless Sea. Again, I highly recommend you read the book because the prose is enchanting and it's engaging. And I will do no justice to it in our little kind of gloss over of the events of the story. Back to Zachary. He has chosen to leave his glasses because have you ever tried to wear glasses and a mask at the same time? So he puts contacts in. His phone and some of his other personal belongings at his actual hotel because he can't get a room at the Algonquin. And we get transported kind of at the door of this hotel into almost that speakeasy feel that you were talking about with the catacombs. They've got a fancy bar, they've got a dance floor, they've got all sorts of nooks and crannies where people can go have private conversations. They can see and be seen as they so desire. And those fancy cocktails are generally book themed. So one thing also that I want to point out is that because this is a costume party, 
Zachary has elected to borrow a mask from Cat, and he is now dressed as the Man in Black from The Princess Bride. Or more accurately, he is just himself with a mask on, as will be pointed out by someone in such a lovingly described costume of Max from Where the Wild Things Are. This is so enchanting to me. The idea of having an illusion to a character in a story rather than it being a direct costume of said character. Something where you have to kind of puzzle it out and figure it out. And one of my favorite examples of this in real life, we have gone to a lot of places like PAX or Comic-Con or Geek Girl Con or what have you. And there was this girl who was dressed as Katara from Avatar The Last Airbender, but she had modified the dress a little bit to look like Jedi robes, and she had a lightsaber with her. Yeah, that was really cool. Uh, it also kind of reminds me of the practice of bounding at Disneyland. So Disney has a strict rule where adults are not allowed to go in costume as Disney characters because they don't want to confuse kids who might think that they're part of the park. So a lot of adults who enjoy the experience, what they'll do is they will find streetwear that is appropriate to wear as a general guest, but that alludes to specific characters through colors and shapes and things like that. So even if it isn't a direct, I'm dressed up exactly like this particular character, it has that feel of they're evoking that character. This has that same sort of feel to it. There is description of the party, which reminds me of the section of Labyrinth, where the Goblin King and Sarah are dancing in this ballroom. It feels comfortable and lived in and almost like you can smell the hotel and it smells the way that a hundred year old hotel might smell. And there is a cat somewhere in this hotel, poor thing, and probably having to weave its way through guests' legs and hide. Depends on how outgoing the cat is. I've had ones that are like people scurry, scurry, scurry under the couch. And I have had ones, like our current ones, that are like, people, I must sit in your lap. This is one of those things that really reminds me of Sylvia Beach. Their hotel cat, Shelly, is a delight. She's always looking to find a comfortable spot to just relax. So you'll find her sitting on rollaway beds or chairs or where have you. Or in the rooms because they'll leave the doors open when there's no guest. It's a game of where's Shelly all the time. And sometimes you'll find Shelly on a guest's lap while they're reading. And it's so nice just to have a cat and a book and a fireplace and a blanket. But yes, Max, we get the impression, is important. After that, we also get what might be a really weird experience in real life, but is very evocative and interesting and engaging to me as a story device. Zachary walks into a room, it's dark, and someone starts whispering a story to him. There's an air of romance and mystery about this. Particular odors get called out, specifically lemon and leather. Scents have a way of being particularly evocative of emotion. And triggering memory. And those smells, I think, are going to be important going forward. 
I love the story that is told. Once very long ago, time fell in love with fate. The story feels a lot like the little vignettes that we have gotten about the pirate and the girl or about the fortune teller's son, but it's being told to Zachary instead of being in a book. And there is something about being told a story. I both listened to this book and then afterward read it. There is something different about it being read to you versus you reading it. When I was little, my dad read to me all the time. And there's something very special about a very good reader telling you a tale. And I think that that works really well, especially with fantasy novels or things that are very intimate. It can feel like a bedtime story. And this book has that ability. This particular story also has elements of that sort of dark, twisted fairy tale because it ends with fate being torn up and devoured by owls, which also calls to mind for me the original version of Pinocchio, where the cricket that is Pinocchio's conscience that we would come to know as Jiminy in the Disney version is smashed with a hammer within the first 10 pages. Cinderella, her stepsisters cut off their toes to try to fit into the glass slipper. Or Snow White makes her stepmother dance in shoes that are full of hot coals. There is also something really twisted about the original tale of The Little Mermaid and these things that we have grown up with the Disneyfied version. If you go read the real one, they're not necessarily ones I would read to kids. Like Sleeping Beauty is and has children while she is asleep. Uh-uh. Yeah. We're told that the owl that eats the eyes of fate in particular gets this element of foresight and becomes known as the Owl King. I'm sure that'll be important later. I'm sure it will. But also a mouse steals off with fate's heart. Oh, that's weird. And then we get the final clue. At least for this section. Zachary looks into his pocket, and what does he find? Something that looks a little like a business card, but is not a business card. It contains two lines of handwritten text. Patience and fortitude. 1 a.m. Bring a flower. And it is 1242 right now. On the back of the card is a bee. That concludes our analysis of the book. So let's talk a bit about a character that jumped out at us. So I like the girl who is dressed as Max. I like her a lot. I like that she has made something kind of obscure that she is hoping book lovers will just understand and grok. And she's disappointed when they don't. It's slightly obscure, but it's paying homage to this thing she loves so much. To this very enchanting, very evocative of childhood character. And while you might not remember the details of where the wild things are, I think a lot of us, maybe not everyone, and I don't know outside of the U.S., but a lot of us, especially in Aaron Morgenstern's age group, which we are, will remember that story from having it been read to them as a child. I remember it mostly at my elementary school being read to me. Elementary school librarians are saints. That's all I have to say on that. But it, again, with that comfy sweater, just, yeah. Yeah, I really like that part too. It kind of reminds me of 
Joel Hodgson, who created Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is one of my favorite shows, talks about how when he was originally pitching the show to this local UHF channel in Minnesota, and they're like, well, don't you think it's a little too obscure here to have these references? I don't think everyone's going to get it. And I remember Joel's response was always, the right people will get it. <laughs> and to this day, I'm not worried about whether everyone gets every joke I tell. The right people will get it. And if they don't, no worries. <laughs> so who did you pick? I gravitated to Kat. I really like the way she approaches experiences. So she's looking at creating these multimedia art installations and she gamifies them in interesting ways that emphasize that interactive approach. So she is looking at how to craft an experience so that there is a mechanical element, there's a narrative element, there is a visual element, a tactile element, auditory, and even a smell element, just so that there is something that really can create an immersive experience where someone can go and experiment and explore. And I love that she is clearly someone who cares about the people around her, and she asks things of them that take them out of their comfort zone, but she also makes sure that they have something comforting to come back to, whether it's a scarf or cookies or something to make it worth their while. I really appreciate that about her. She's a very people-oriented and detail-oriented person. Yeah, it feels like she really is the kind of thoughtful friend that everyone should be so lucky to have because she knows, for instance, how Zachary is. She knows that Zachary doesn't like to just naturally come out of his little cave. <laughs> and she knows that it's going to take a lot to get him to open up. So she finds a way to address his particular needs. Ultimately, he ends up having a grand time at that little symposium. It's a great thing that she does for him. And I think it also helps lead him to the next step of his quest. Yeah, I think Kat is my character. So let's talk a little bit about game experiences here. Why don't you start us off? All right. So it's been a while, but I used to play World of Warcraft a lot. I played it for a number of years, and then I stopped, and then I played it again, and then we stopped, and then we played it together, and we stopped. Currently in the stopped land, but I had a lot of friends who were friends with me in real life spaces, and we all played together. And it was really an amazing experience to play a game online with avatars where all of us really wanted to help one another get better at it. And I remember back when I think it was, was it Northrend was new? That's how long ago it was. I played with a group of friends. We played a dungeon, the Nexus, I believe. And I have a horrible sense of direction. It doesn't matter if it is in a game or in real life. I have a horrible sense of direction. Will is nodding his head. And I got lost in the dungeon. Somebody had to come and get me because they were all ready to do the boss fight. And I was off somewhere else where there were things going to spawn again really soon. And I was playing my shaman who was off healing spec at the time. So not the most boom boom of shaman. 
So we got back, set up, start fighting the boss, and then one after another, the mage went down, and then I went down, and then our priest and our tank, and the warlock's just fighting the boss fight at the end all by himself, and I'm just watching my res timer and going, when is it going to happen? When am I going to? And I'm watching the, the health bar of the dragon and I'm watching my res timer. And right before our warlock dies, I can pop and I get the last shot off and it kills it. And we're all like, yes, because we're all on a, I think it was a vent call. <laughs> and we're all just like jumping for joy <laughs> over the fact that we managed to beat this thing. And it was... It's such a good bonding experience considering at the time, I think we were in three different states and we all had this shared experience together. And I love that feeling of fellowship. Yeah, my story is also a World of Warcraft one. That was back in uh, the Burning Crusade days. I was in a guild with a bunch of real life friends and we also had some not real life friends, just other people that we knew. One day we decided, let's get every Alliance character on the server that we can find, every big guild, and then we're all going to just do a mass raid on Nagrand. So we had everybody specked out, we had everyone flying on their flying mounts, and we all just descended en masse on the horde encampment in the Grand. And, like we killed all of their NPCs. We killed every horde player who came into the zone. We just raffle pwned them all. And it's just like absolute chaos. Like we went and looked for every world boss we could find because we could just outnumber them all because we had like 80 people, two whole raid groups full. <laughs> How did you manage to not lag out? Not very well. <laughs> I've been on 40-man raids and oof. Well, to be fair, this was also in the world area, so it's not instanced out, so it's designed to handle a little more capacity. But at the same time, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. We had rogues going around just hiding in the horde encampment, just killing people left and right. Someone would spawn in and suddenly they'd be covered in warlock dots. <laughs> and then, you know. Did the horde ever get you guys back? No, because then we got bored and left and then dispersed. There is something kind of gratifying about being on a PvP server. But at the same time, I hate being ganked by the other factions. So I wasn't on one of those. So that was my story. Let's move on here to what is a game that you would recommend for someone looking to dip their feet into the water? So because this is kind of a gateway game section for us this time around, I recommend a lot of narrative experience games more than needing to have the ability to be twitchy games, I guess. One that I would recommend for brand new players to introduce them to the idea that not all games are spiked in difficulty or just about shooting things, is the game Gree. It's one of those charming indie games that's about Gree for some shirt. It has game design elements, like how do I make a thing happen the way I need to have it happen? It's a puzzle game, but it's also got gorgeous music. It has 
a story loosely tied around it and uses color and art to guide you through an experience. The reason that I would suggest it for a newbie or a gateway into games from somebody who doesn't usually play games, it's not punishing at all. It's all about the experience. The difficulty curve or what have you, I don't think that it's really a difficulty curve. It's more like a ability curve is very gradual, is very intuitive. You start off, the only thing you can really do is walk one way or the other and jump. And then you get an ability that your Y button can do and then an ability that your X button can do. I think it challenges your brain to do some things in one of the levels where you have to do a platformer upside down. But I don't think in any way that it's so difficult that it would turn people off. And the story is compelling without being like a story told to you. It's more like an experience that you're going through. I've watched you play it numerous times. The thing that strikes me is there isn't really a concrete narrative so much as a series of moods. There isn't really what you would call a hard failure condition. So you're never in a situation where you have failed and now you have to start all over from the very beginning or anything like that. In fact, actually, there's no failure. There's no character death. And I like what you said about moods because the game is also about building color back into your world and it uses that color story so very, very well. It maps like so many of the indie games that I love really well onto the stages of grief. It's meant to, but it uses color like red for anger because that's such a passionately felt emotion and that red just works. But as you build up more colors into your cooler colors, your greens and your blues, it goes from being something that's almost a visceral feel to being something that's calming and easier to go through. And then it plunges you into the depths of sorrow, but there's still beauty in it. Yeah, I can see exactly why it's one of your favorites. So the other thing is that when I think about a gateway game or trying to introduce a game to someone who doesn't really play games, I think about introducing one to your mom. I think that this is one where she wouldn't get overwhelmed. And if we could get her to sit still for like a couple of seconds and not feel like she has to be super productive, it's short. So it can hold her attention for the whole thing. But it's an experience that has so much depth and beauty that you can bring into it where I think her preconceived notion of what a video game is, is, I don't know, Call of Duty. More likely Mario. Possibly Mario. But I think that your parents still have a little bit of that demonize it as video games are bad to them. And I would really like to show them something that's a beautiful experience. And that's why I would choose something like this. Yeah, I could see my parents having a good time with it. Especially my mom, I think, for her mind, she just generally thinks that video games are low kids entertainment, that they're hyperactive and filled with noise, and I think it would be interesting to see her play a game that counteracts that narrative, where it's a game that's meditative and thoughtful with a gentle progression. 
where there is no combat, there's no fighting, there is no danger. There's not combat in that there is not any stakes if you fail, but there are a few instances where anger or sorrow or grief catch up to the character and the music and the tone and the action that is going on are no longer as gentle, but they're not a truly dangerous thing. You never die in this game. This is one of those ones that if you have someone who feels like video games are that low children's entertainment, which there is absolutely nothing wrong with those types of games. Those types of experiences are valid and valuable. But if you have someone who who feels like they like stories and narrative and beautiful things and has that appreciation for maybe cinema or like artsy cinema, let's say, there are definitely some games that are out there that might be able to draw them in and find value where maybe they thought that there wasn't any. So my example is going to be Hades. So this is a relatively recent game. Just got its full release here at the beginning of October. It's by Supergiant Games, and I'm surprised that you're choosing that as a gateway game. Yeah, so here's why. This is a game where failure is to be expected, and it's also rewarded. The tagline that I would give to it is, that which kills you will actually make you stronger. It's difficult, certainly, but it's also designed in such a way that with each failure, you come back stronger, and it actually does reward practice meaningfully. Instead of just killing you with difficulty, you're rewarded, and you get better at it as you go along, and you get more powerful as you go along, even if you die, and you're expected to die. Especially if you die. Actually, you're not going to get more powerful if you don't. Yeah. It also has a fun narrative element, especially if you are someone who has spent a lot of time reading Greek mythology. I have really been having a blast finding all of these callbacks to a lot of these stories that I read in my college days. I strongly recommend Hades. It's easy to pick up and put down too, though you probably won't want to. <laughs> I know, we're actually both playing it right now, and I didn't choose it because I knew you would probably want to talk about it. I like that we're both playing it. We get a slightly different experience out of it, depending on which one of us was playing. I'm on god mode so that I wind up with a damage reduction every time that I go through it, because I like narrative more than I like challenge. So things that are happening with you going through it like on your 35th or 40th time I'm seeing on my 20th time. And if you go through it more times, you'll get a more drawn out story versus go through it less times and you get less of those details, but also it feels like a faster narrative. Granted, it also has a lot of these gaming elements that encourage you to go through it over and over and over again. Because for people like me who are achievement hunters, you get all of the things that you've done recorded and you can get rewarded for doing some of them multiple times or getting a different random draw off of a table. And then, of course, there's things that we can talk about with each other about the game. Like yesterday, I looked at you and I said, who all have you given gifts to? And I responded, 
Everyone but Aphrodite and Ares, because I haven't forgiven them for their role in the Trojan War. <laughs> was it petty? Yes. I'm going to be honest here. I thought I was going to hate the game. I was having a pretty bad day a couple months ago, and I put out on Twitter, hey, I feel like I want to punch a pillow, but I don't want to punch a pillow because I would like to A, keep my pillow intact, and B, not hurt my hand, and C, not scare the cats. And I just said, hey, I need to know some recommendations from y'all about video games where I can just punch the heck out of pixels. And I don't even remember anymore who said it, but somebody suggested Hades, and then another one of our really dear friends also suggested Hades. I looked and it's not that expensive on the Switch and I bought it and it took a couple of days but I started playing it. The music is beautiful which granted I listened to the music on a YouTube video that Supergiant is wonderful enough to have put the entire soundtrack up on YouTube. I love them. They also have tutorials on how to play some of the songs. They have there's sheet music available for at least Bastion and Transistor. Oh my gosh, I love these people. They're always great about making sure that the music is compelling. And that's one of those things that is also a gateway into a game. But then I started playing it and the combat is so smooth and understandable. And I don't like that much challenge in my video games. I don't play for challenge. I play for narrative. I play because I'm an achievement hunter. I play because I like experiences. And obviously in this particular game, which is a roguelike, there is a lot of combat, which is not usually the thing that I want, but everything else around it is so compelling and the combat feels good, which means that we tend to wrestle the controllers out of each other's hands or Occasionally, if I feel like I've been playing too long, I'll just hand it to you because I don't want you to feel like you can't play a video game in our own house because I've stolen it. <laughs> and I'd say even though it is not a two-player game, we both find value and find entertainment in watching each other play. That part really reminds me of when I was a kid. Oftentimes, like at sleepovers with some of my friends, you know, we'd pick a single player game as our thing to play and we'd just take turns playing and it was always as much fun to be the person riding shotgun so to speak you know calling things out and you know laughing at the random pratfalls and the discoveries that we'd run into and then trying to replicate one another's things it has a very fun feel to it and because everything is procedurally generated in it you never really feel like your own experience will have been spoiled because there's going to be a random set of encounters that you're going to go through on your run. And it's a game where failure is built into it and it's built into the narrative and the mechanics so they all work together perfectly in this marriage of hardcore combat and classics major. It owes as much to Homer's The Iliad as it does to Diablo. And it's fun it's funny that is another good part about this the writing is fantastic it's entertaining and it's just that kind of sly humor that just makes me giggle and Zagreus has this fun relationship with just about everybody he's alternately this kid who's compassionate to the people who live in his house and he's also that rebellious teenager who's snotty to his dad Petulant. Petulant is the word that I would think. Petulant. He's got a little of that. 
there's drama, there's humor, there's empathy, there's pathos. It's really fascinating, just all the way throughout. But moving on, let's talk about book recommendations. I'm going to go ahead and choose The Ocean at the End of the Lane. I like these near-reality fantasies. I like folklore. I like feeling like maybe this could really happen. And I like current fiction that has allusions to older stories. The Ocean at the End of the Lane also has some of those romanticized books and magic and cats. And I really enjoy a lot of Neil Gaiman's writing. So my recommendation here is going to be William Goldman's Princess Bride, the good parts version, which is the literary book of the Princess Bride that the movie was based off of. I love the movie. That's how I found it. But then when I read the book, I fell in love with it even more. It's a story about stories in many ways. It's central framing device here is of a publisher trying to track down a rare version of S. Morgenstern's The Princess Bride, and it really speaks to the way that you can have this central story that is a little bit different for everyone who reads it, and the way that we all have our own The Good Parts version of any given story. Or once you really internalize a book, you just kind of skip the parts you don't like to get to the stuff you love. That's also reflected in the movie as well. This is the perfect marriage of source material and adaptation. I feel like the version of The Princess Bride that the grandfather reads to his grandson in the movie is the same book that the editor in the book is always referring back to and editing and changing and inserting snarky commentary about as well. I'm a sucker for long drawn out footnotes that deliver great jokes. Hence your love for Discworld. Yep, Discworld is what introduced me to that, and The Princess Bride is in that same tradition, where the footnotes are the best place to get the jokes. That's where you can have those weird little rambling asides. It's just one of my favorite things ever. If you have the opportunity, read The Princess Bride. It's just a great read. Now I have a question for you. When was the first time you saw the movie? How old were you? So I first saw the movie when I was 11 or 12. I was in sixth grade and it was in fencing class. It was a day where we only had two people present. So our coach was like, well, we don't have enough people here to really do a full session here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to watch The Princess Bride. This has some of the best stage combat you'll ever see. <laughs> so it's interesting that you say that because the first time I saw it was in an acting class where my acting coach was saying, this is the best stage combat that you'll ever see. The thing is that it was choreographed by a champion fencer, a guy named Bob Anderson. Same Bob Anderson that I'm thinking of? Did he have anything to do with Star Wars? Yes, he did. Same guy. So when the characters are talking about Benetti's defense, or Agrippa, or Capofera, those are actual fencing manuals that have been incredibly influential throughout the history of Western swordplay. So the characters are referencing all of these real historical things. Now, I don't know if they involve elaborate spin moves or anything like that, 
but they're real and the footwork is real and everything is built around this play of both movement and dialogue and all of this works together to tell the story of who these two characters are. And this is true of every fight scene in this. We see when Inigo and Wesley fight, we see that they both enjoy a challenge because they both start off using their left hands when they are right-hand dominant people. We see that these are two people who respect craft. We see that these are people who are witty and fun and honorable combatants. Initially, they start off as foes and eventually become friends by the end of the movie. When Wesley fights Fezzik, we learn that Fezzik is a gentle giant. He has no desire for violence, even though he is capable of great violence. We learn that he is happy to fight gangs for local charities. <laughs> he also enjoys a good challenge, and he also wants to generally just enjoy his strength without necessarily hurting somebody else if he can avoid it. We also see that Wesley is a bit of a combat pragmatist when he has to be. Not very sportsmanlike. And then when we get to Wesley versus Vicini, then we learn that Wesley is fiendishly clever in his own right, and we know that Vizzini is too in love with his own cleverness. That entire sequence is always amazing. Simply great. Across the board, it's charming, it's funny, and it comes across that way in the book too. It's a perfect marriage of source material, adaptation, and cast. Just chef's kiss. <laughs> and now I think it is time for us to return to the Starless Sea and pick quotes from the book that have spoken to us. You first. All right. So my quote is, yet all things change with time. I think that this speaks to the limits of nostalgia, how comfort is all well and good, but we change, and so our relationship with the things that we have grown up with changes. We see new things in them, and we see new things in ourselves. At a certain point, you have to grow beyond that comfort zone and look for something new, and you have to accept that your relationship with something is going to change. I can say from experience, there are some movies that I watched when I was a kid. There's some books that I read when I was a kid where I didn't realize some of them are very problematic. And going back and you just go, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. And you have to re-examine them from an adult lens or from a now I know different things. And maybe culturally as a society, we know different things or have acknowledged different things that maybe we should have known when we were reading this in the 80s, but that we were just like, oh, that's fine. I had a little golden book about Br'er Rabbit that's nope, <laughs> nope, 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 nope. <laughs> One of my most beloved possessions is a book that is Skeezix. If you know the character from Gasoline Alley, it was my dad's book and it was given to him when he was a wee little baby in like the 30s. And oh boy, will I never show that to a child. Mostly because... Skizix's nanny is black, and the way they have depicted her, nope, 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 
No. No. But I didn't know any better when I was six years old. But I was six years old. Looking back with nostalgia is great. And you can say I loved the experience of my dad reading this book to me. I felt like it was a very special thing. But you can also look at it and go, well, my perspective has changed because now I understand more and know better than a six-year-old. Yeah, I think a lot of times nostalgia is longing for a time that never actually was. It's longing for a world that felt simpler because we were simpler. The world has always been complex. It's never not been complex. It's just that our understanding was less so. It's the same reason why 30-somethings are just now getting back into the music they were listening to in high school. Yeah, most of the stuff that I was listening to in high school is not the stuff that was necessarily good when I was in high school. There's something to be said for understanding that impulse and reining it in, because it's important to experience new things. It's important to have intellectual curiosity, even as you grow up and think that you know a whole ton. There is a whole bunch of stuff that I do not know. But I want to learn at least a little bit more before the end. Yeah, we got a ways to go. We're not that old. So uh, what was your quote? All right, so I'm going to be a little bit cheeky. I have a real quote, and then I have one that was funny enough. Seven words. So first with the seven word quote. Also... I was looking for the cat. Well, that's a real one. As it's gotten colder, I realized that I've been looking around going, where are cats? Where did they go? Because previously, when it's not been frigid, we can find them really easily. Sokka is in everything all the time, except when it's freezing cold. At that point, you can find him reliably with his foot sticking out from under the couch because the heater vent in our living room is under the couch. Yeah, there's always that little moment of dread when you realize it's too quiet. Where is he? <laughs> <laughs> but as for the actual quote that I am really picking, but the world is strange and endings are not truly endings, no matter how the stars might wish it so. I'm the type of book reader that kind of grieves the end of a story. I'm the kind of game player that also kind of grieves the end of the story, which is part of why I love Hades so very, very much. There is not an end right yet. Even as you get to the end, there is not an end. Spoiler, sorry. But <laughs> because it's a roguelike, you should just expect that you're never going to find an ending. Because things will start again. The ending of one story bleeds into the beginning of another story. The same is true for our world. There is no true ending of a thing. To bring it to a really light, fun, silly example, the ending of Firefly led into the beginning of the story that so many geeks and nerds have of eventually it will come back. That is a story we have been telling ourselves for however long it has been since Firefly went away. That was like 2004. I know. There are people who are still diehard bring Firefly back. I know. I've seen the change.org petitions. 
So it changed from I love this thing to I love this thing so much I want it back in my life. It wasn't truly an ending, even when we got a movie. Not truly an ending to this story. It's like the old song went, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. And I think that that one, the songwriter was talking about when he became a parent. I've actually listened to him talk about it, and it actually makes the song better. In case you didn't know, we're talking about Closing Time by Semisonic, which is a one-hit wonder from the late 90s. You're welcome. And so the song initially seems to be about closing down a bar and sort of this last call feel to it. But it definitely has that feeling of something is drawing to a close, a phase of life is ending as a new one begins. And in this case, he's talking about the birth of his child, how it ends that phase where he and his partner can just spend all their time hanging out with their friends and doing things just for themselves. And then as their child is born, they have a new life that they're building together that is a little more internally focused around them and their immediate family. And it's still important and it's still good. While it's okay to mourn that life that you used to have, the new life is just as important and it's just as valid and just as good. It's just different. I think that there is value to be found in the beginnings of things. But it's also okay to feel sad by the ends. I think really at the end of the day, you have to just let yourself feel what you feel without shame. Once you're done with feeling that, you can appreciate that next phase. Speaking of the next phase, it's time to slowly transition away from this episode. And in two weeks, there will be a beginning of a next episode. And so with that... I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone, a starless interlude, where we will be covering pages 90 through 169 of the U.S. paperback edition of The Starless Sea. We'd like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And Aaron Morgenstern, who has created a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you'd like to become a patron on our Patreon page, find us at patreon.com slash waystonepod. There you can find exclusive early access to all of our podcasts, as well as a few Patreon-exclusive bonus pods. We've also got art and blog posts, and occasional polls and social engagement opportunities for you. If you want to help us out, if you have the means, please consider donating. We appreciate just having you listening to the show. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. So much for the fog airplane. Land, damn it. Land or leave. Go away. Airplane, go away. Airplane, go away. Please go away. Thank you.